Thank you, choir, orchestra. It feels like they're taking us to the heights today with Psalm 139, that beautiful promise. If you're reading a psalm a day with me, you may have found yourself uh, today in Psalm 125, Psalm 126. These are the psalms of the ascents that the people of God sang as they were going higher up the road to Jerusalem. The one for today says, you who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forevermore. And if you read tomorrow, you'll see in verse 3, Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. They sang these songs as they were on their way, and we've been thinking together about the way, particularly the way that the word the way is used. You should know it's used about 102 times in the New Testament, and it's really the word hadon, which just means highway. It's the road, but it has a history, doesn't it? So in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, there's a voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way. And the Apostle Paul did his level best to fight the way. But it seems like everywhere he went, the way had preceded him. The Latin word for it, via or via, was the name they gave to their roads. There was the via Appia, the Appian Way. Melanie and I stood on that road some years ago. Uh, it's black basalt stones. I think we have a picture of it. And that, that road was the same road that the Apostle Paul walked on. And I just had to stop there for a moment and think, 2,000 years later, the road is still there. The thing about roads is they start somewhere, right? There's a beginning and there's an ending. For Paul, the, the encounter with the way was on his way to Damascus. He was really going his own way, but he thought he was going God's way. And then he ran right there on the way to Damascus. He ran right into the way, right into Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, you are persecuting me. Afterward, uh, it was while he was trying, Acts chapter 9, verse 2, to persecute the way. Uh, he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged, there it is, to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, after he encounters um, Jesus and he's blind, the Lord sends Ananias. Remember, we talked about this. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument. What's he going to do? What's this guy who was persecuting the way, who's now found the way, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to go and proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So let, let me just give you a sort of capsule of it. He was trying to arrest the Christians and put them on trial, and today we find that it has come full circle. And for the sake of the very one he was persecuting, Paul himself is now on trial. 
before one of the Roman rulers. And it made me wonder, if you and I were arrested and put on trial for being followers of the way Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Would you open your Bibles with me? Acts chapter 24, verses 10 to 16. Uh, there's been a, a, a rhetorical flourish from uh, the uh, Tertullus, who was the, uh, I guess he was the uh, prosecuting attorney, and he has flattered uh, Felix, the governor, but he really hasn't had much substance. And Paul's going to answer his charges. Stand with me in reverence for our God and his word. Acts chapter 24. Pay attention to his words in case you ever get put on trial for being a Christian. They may, they may come in handy. When the governor motioned for Paul to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. If you remember the play Hamlet, Polonius makes an eloquent plea and the queen is not impressed. She's uh, looking for more brevity, for more matter. So this uh, Tertullus uh, flatters Felix it must be a hard job being a judge. I have friends who are members of our church who are judges. And reading this again this week, I thought, that must be a hard job because everybody's coming to you with an angle. Everybody's got a spin. There's some kind of fluff that they're trying to sell. And Tertullus was in that situation. You should know that when Paul left Ephesus, remember there was a big there was a big riot. He didn't start the riot, but by preaching the gospel, it started a riot. And he leaves there because he has to get to Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem because he wants to give an offering to the poor. And he goes up to the temple to worship. And while he's in the temple, they come and they start a mob and they try to beat him to death. And, and Claudius Lysias, who is a soldier, a centurion. By the way, all the centurions in the Bible are good guys. Isn't that interesting? And the centurion saves his life. And then uh, because of a plot against his life, sends him to Felix. And Felix is going to hear his case. And Tertullus says he's a bad guy. And, and Paul stands up and says, I don't really start riots. That's not my, my work. 
But if you're accusing me of worshiping the God of my ancestors according to the way, Jesus Christ, I'm guilty. He confesses his crime. I'm guilty. If that's what you're accusing me of, and he uses this expression, the way, and I'm just reminded that every way starts somewhere. So down on the coast, down on the coast, uh, 400 miles south of Rome, that's where the Appian Way starts, but it makes its way finally to Rome. In the same way, um, if you get on I-45, you can get to Dallas from here. But, but I-45 doesn't start here. You'll agree with me. It starts down at exit 1A, which is in Galveston, right? And that's where 45 starts, but it gets up there till it turns into 75 and heads off into the hinterlands of Oklahoma. But, but it's, it's 45 on that way. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, so this road, this way, this story of Jesus starts in the Old Testament. It's rooted in revelation that God revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But it is on its way rising to the resurrection. And Paul says, I'm on this way. If you want to know which way I'm on, that's the way I'm on. And if you're accusing me of that, well, then yes, I admit that I am guilty as charged. And Paul is being arrested and tried for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, there's just so much evidence. There's so much evidence against him that he's a follower of Jesus, that he is who he says he is, which made me wonder, so what do people who are followers of the way, what do we do? And Paul just gives us some pointers here to help us to understand what exactly do people who walk the Jesus way do? I mean, are we the ones who are starting fights, stirring up crowds, rioting? Is that who we are? No. No, that's not who we are. The way of Jesus starts in the scriptures of the Old Testament, and it gives us hope as it takes us all the way home to God. So just three things this morning. First, following the way, we worship the God of our ancestors in accordance with the scripture. So Paul spent his life studying the Old Testament. What he didn't know was that that it wasn't just a list of rules. As a Pharisee, he got the rules part. What he missed was the relationship part, the part that it was pointing him to a relationship with God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so uh, Jesus would would later uh, say, as he was walking on the road to Emmaus with those two would-be disciples, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus himself told them his story, all the scriptures concerning himself in the Old Testament. Well, what, what Paul knew as he was a worshiper 
as it, and it wasn't just saying that he sang, by the way. I know sometimes worship becomes a synonym for, for singing these days. That, that, that's not what the Bible actually teaches, though singing is part of worship. It's not the whole. In fact, what Paul is doing is what his ancestors did. God revealed himself to Abraham. God revealed himself to Isaac. God revealed himself to Jacob. And finally, on that road to Damascus, God revealed himself to Paul. And when Paul saw him, there began this life of worship. And what was that worship? Well, he offered his life as a living sacrifice to God, which was his spiritual worship. And he says to them, Look, the way I'm on starts way back with revelation, God revealing himself. Father Abraham had many sons, our children used to sing. And many sons and daughters had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them. And so are you. You, you are, aren't you? So we should praise the Lord. The worship begins with the relationship with God, and God revealed himself in the prophets. I know many of you studied Jonah this, this morning, and maybe you studied Amos last week, and we're working through the prophets in our connect groups, and some of our connect groups are teaching through that portion of the Bible. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says right at the beginning in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he created the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And I was thinking about a friend that I spent some time with recently, and I knew his parents, prayed with his dad, loved loved his dad, loved his mom, and now he has no interest, no interest at all in the things of God, but pro proclaims himself an atheist, and I think, wait, the God of your forefathers is Jesus Christ, and he has taken your parents all the way home to live with him, and you're telling me you've chosen another road, the road you're on, if it's not the road that begins with the revelation of God in the Old Testament, the road you're on is a road to nowhere or a road to a somewhere where you don't want to be. But the road that begins and is rooted in the revelation of God in the Old Testament is the road that leads us to the hope of resurrection. So what, what happens if we stay on the way? If you leave Galveston, you'll eventually get to Houston. And we're, I, the only thing I don't like about this analogy is Dallas becomes heaven. And I don't really like that analogy. I, I'm just being honest. I got people up there, but please don't tell them I said this because it'll go to their head. And they've already let a lot of things go to their head. So I just, that's all I'm going to say about that. Second, following the way, we wait in hope for the resurrection. So we have hope. So when I'm holding these babies today, right, which is, by the way, is a great job if you can get it. Melanie's, Melanie's with the honey, if you're wondering, she's with the honeybees this morning. 
She's over there taking care of the ones who aren't old enough. to. She's with the honeybees. I said, you take care of the honeybees. I'll go feed the sheep. I'll be over here. You be over there. I, I asked her to swap with me, but she wouldn't do it. So the honeybees must be really really sweet or something. So following the way, we wait in hope for the resurrection as I'm holding these babies. So I have friends. I'm not, I'm not making this up. I have friends who say to me, I, just, I wouldn't bring children in the world right now. This world's just so bad. I just, you know, what hope do these children have? Oh, the same hope we had when I was born in 1962. His name is Jesus. I mean, if your hope is in economic success, I don't know what the next 30 years are like. I have no idea. If your hope is in the sustaining strength of a particular government in the world, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But if your hope is in Jesus Christ, whoo, you got all the hope in the world. These babies, there's hope for these babies because it turns out that we serve a savior who knows his way out of the grave. So Jesus is there with Martha and she's like, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And, and Jesus looks at her and says, so just so you know, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? My friend Lavonia Duck, whose service we had yesterday, whose burial we will have tomorrow, she believed this. Heart and soul, she believed this. She staked her life on it. I was telling yesterday in the funeral how about a year ago, Jim Idiakas called me and he said, hey, Livonia's not doing well. And, and, and Roger, Livonia's husband, had mentored both me and Jim. And Jim just wanted to give me a heads up. So I called Denise and, or texted Denise. And I made my way up to Dallas on a Friday, flying trip, whole day, go up there. Because I want to see her one more time before she goes home. This was August the 6th of 2021. And, and I get there and I said, I don't want to cause any problems. I just, you know, I know she's very sick. And I just, I want to see her one more time. It's like, well, she may not speak. She may not know you. Just, you know, she's been on hospital. But, but just be quiet. Maybe just go in and have a prayer. You don't have to wake her up. I don't know if she will wake up. I walk in the room and Lavonia looks across the room and I see and her eyes connect. She props herself up on her elbow and says, I'm going to live. And she did for another year and some. But I'm telling you, when she went home to be with the Lord, early in the morning, or was it late at night? It was in that little window there, almost Sunday morning when she went home to be with the Lord, where it's always Sunday morning, where it's always Easter, where it's always resurrection all the time. She could have said to me, if she could have spoken one more time, I'm going to live. I'm going to live. She built her life on that hope, on that faith, on that trust. You may know the name Larry Taunton. He was the guy who arranged all of the debates between Christopher Hitchens, the renowned sort of novo atheist, and the Christians in our country, those debates, a guy named Larry Taunton. And he actually, I don't know if I would have wanted this job, he got to drive Christopher Hitchens all around the country to these debates. And he said they were driving one day, and Christopher had been diagnosed with cancer. He died here in, in Houston. But, but, but on his way to one of those debates, very sick, he's reading the Bible. Are you following me? 
Christopher Hitchens is reading the Bible and he gets to John chapter 11 and to those verses, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, I remember these verses. I didn't know they had to do with Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus. And then with a bit of a sneer, he says to Larry Taunton, the Christian, believest thou this in King James English? Believe, do you believe this? And Larry Taunton said, yeah, you know I believe that. Here's the question, Christopher. Do you believe that? That Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. And he said, Hitchens paused for a moment because he was trying to think of some clever riposte, some, some you know, witty answer. And then he said this, I'll admit that it's not without appeal to a dying man. What hope do we have? The same hope we've always had. John Hanna says, as I was writing the end of my sermon yesterday, the telephone rang and a student said, last night my child died. What could I say to him? I will say to him what I would say to anyone. It's captured in the little gospel song. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Think about Rick Warren, that great pastor out in California whose 27-year-old son uh, dealt with depression, with mental illness, ultimately took his own life. And the agony of that, and Rick Warren, in response to somebody who said, um, how have you made it? How do you keep going? And he said, my answer to that is Easter. Easter is how my wife and I keep going because you remember that on, there, there's a Friday and a Saturday and a Sunday. He says the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus happened over three days. Friday, the day of suffering and pain and agony. Some of you are on a Friday right now. I understand. Saturday's the day of doubt and confusion and misery. But he said Easter, that Sunday was the day of hope, the day of joy, the day of victory. And from time to time, we, we run into things that are absolutely agonizing. And in the middle of that, if you say to me, what do we have to offer to people? We have a Savior who is risen from the grave. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. This is helpful. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. What Jesus envisioned was that through his church, all of heaven would begin to break loose in our world. By the time we get to 2 Peter, which is likely one of the later uh, books of the New Testament, the writer, Peter, says, look, th there are going to be scoffers in the last days. There are going to be people who, who make fun of what we believe. But he said, just remember this. God is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness. But he is being patient with us because he's not willing for any to perish. And then he says, but he will come and the earth will dissolve. Jesus will come personally, visibly, powerfully, victoriously. And then he says, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The hope that Paul had, he said, listen, I have the same hope. There were Pharisees in the crowd. He says, I have the same hope 
that they have of the resurrection. Now, Paul had a little bit of insight because he knew Jesus had been raised from the dead, which is confirmation of the resurrection. But by that, Paul meant that all of us would be raised. And I know I hear a lot of people talking about the second coming these days. I don't hear many people who are excited about the resurrection of the body, but I think we should be because that's the center of the New Testament teaching that this broken body is going to be made new and this new body is going to live forever in a new heavens and a new earth. This is the promise. This is what Paul was looking forward to. And he says to them, there's going to be a resurrection of of the righteous and the unrighteous, of the just and the unjust. Where do you fit that on your chart? The part where, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you got that one on your chart? We're all, so when he says we, that's kind of inclusive, isn't it? Because he's talking about believers. He says we all, we all must appear, so it's not optional, before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul had a sense that you and I, and because of that, listen to this, so Paul's eschatology had everything to do with his ethics. So for Paul, the thought that he was going to face Jesus, and the good news is the judge is Jesus who died for you. That's the good news. The rest of the news is we're going to answer. So this gives us accountability. So this this sort of uh, easy believism, I'm just, I die and I go to heaven, that's it. And and then I can just live however I want to because I accepted Jesus. So see, this just wrecks that idea. The, The reality is if I'm a follower of Jesus, then I'm accountable to him for my thoughts, my words, and my deeds. And I want to follow him well because following the way, following the way leads us to worship in accordance with the scriptures. Following the way means we wait in hope. And following the way means we walk in holiness with a clear conscience. Paul says, since I know there's going to be a resurrection, I strive. Sounds like he's working at this. He's not working to earn his salvation. He's working because he's saved. And he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I want, a, I want a clear conscience. John Wooden, the, the basketball coach, said there's no pillow as soft as a clear conscience. you got a clear conscience. You can sleep at night. But what Paul says is following Jesus should change the way. Can we agree Paul changed when he became a follower of Jesus? Like he used to persecute the Christians, and now he's preaching Christ. That's a big change. And it happened almost immediately, right? I mean, right there in, in Damascus, it happened. And so the reality for us is when we realize that we have the hope of resurrection, it changes the way we live. Or it should. Shouldn't it change the way we live? Example, um, years ago, my first sabbatical, I went to Oxford and stayed there. There's a Baptist college at Oxford, go figure. And um, I went there and stayed. And the the, uh, principal of the college told me the flat you're staying in is the same flat where J.R.R. Tolkien lived at one time. And thinking back about that, I should have been a whole lot more productive while I was there. <laughs> Think about all those Lord of the Rings things he wrote. And I'm staying in the same flat, and I got nothing. I mean, I, mean, I didn't really get a whole lot done there. But just around the corner is the, the Eagle and Child pub where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and all the Inklings met. That's where they, that's where they hung out. And um, I went there and ate a meal. And just in case you're wondering... 
It wasn't that great. I mean, it, went, it, went, it was okay, but it wasn't really great food. But I'm, I'm there, and, um, and I remember the story that uh, a pastor told about going to that. And, and what he said is that these Christians who come there, because that's where C.S. Lewis ate, they steal the menus because they want a memento. And so one day this pastor was sitting there, like me, he had been studying there, and some, a group left, and there were no menus left on the table. And he said, and I quote, bloody Christians, they're always stealing my menus. Any memorabilia, I, just, I can't even put anything out anymore because they steal. They cost me two pounds a piece. I had hundreds of them printed. I've only got 10 menus left because they keep taking them. And this is what he says. What gets me is that all these people who come in for Lewis are supposed to be, are supposed to be Christians, right? And here's the deal. It's a bitter irony because the manager of the eagle and child, or as Lewis called it, the bird and babe, holds Christians and presumably Christianity itself in disdain because of the behavior of the Christians who flocked there to pay homage to C.S. Lewis. They wouldn't think about drinking a pint of beer. But they'll steal your menu almost every time. You see the disconnect? You see what makes it hard for us sometimes? to share the good news of Jesus Christ because our conduct is so very different from the Christ we say we serve. And if you have a hope of resurrection, then live to have a clear conscience with God to be sure, but with other people as well. And I come finally to James Deacon White. I have to talk about baseball because football's painful right now. (laughs) And I think some of you know what I mean. But... There was a, the first baseball player who got the very first hit in the first professional game, are you with me, was named James Deacon White. It was a double, by the way, first hit. But if you go to the Hall of Fame and you look and read the inscription, it doesn't talk about him being the greatest. He was, he was the first catcher to wear a mask. He was the first pitcher to have a windup, which turns out it's kind of important. And he, he had all that going for him, but what it says was he was... A gentleman. How much so? He got the nickname Deacon because he never spiked anybody. He's not Ty Cobb. He, he didn't try to hurt the other team. Uh, he didn't lie. So he's the catcher. And one day the umpire asked him, was that guy out or not? Causing the other team to go, ah, you can't ask a player on the other team. And he goes, listen, and this is the quote from the umpire. The umpire said, look, if If Deacon White says something, then it's so. And that's all there is about it. And at the end of the day, we want to be the kinds of people. You say, what exactly do people of the way do? Listen, we worship in the revelation of God from the Old Testament. We wait in hope for the resurrection of of the just and the unjust and We walk in holiness, and that's all there is to it. If you were put on trial, if I were put on trial for being a follower of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, God, for the promise of the resurrection that with the Apostle Paul we can say this mortal is going to put on immortality, this perishable is going to put on the imperishable, and then the saying which is written will come true. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? For the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, if we're going to carry the name Christian, then I pray this week that you will help us to live like Christ lived for the sake of your kingdom as we walk along this way. In Jesus' name, amen.